difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Epps. And Genevieve Kosky. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Nick Park and Peter Lord's 2000 film, Chicken Run, in which a brood of chickens conspire to escape the prison-like confines of Tweety's farm. In this episode, we'll consider another stop-motion feature about animals conspiring to escape captivity. Wes Anderson's ninth feature, Isle of Dogs, which follows a pack of quarantined canines as they plot a return from exile. Voiced by Brian Cranston as Chief, Edward Norton as Rex, Bob Balaban as King, Bill Murray as Boss, and Jeff Goldblum as Duke, the pack in question picks through the scraps on Trash Island, where their former masters in Megasaki City have left them. The strongman mayor of Megasaki City, Kobayashi, is really more of a cat person, and when a dog virus spreads throughout the canine population, he signs a decree to banish them to Trash Island. Six months later, Kobayashi's orphaned nephew Atari, voiced by Koyu Rankin, steals a plane and flies to Trash Island in search of his beloved dog Spots. As Atari joins Chief and the gang to search for Spots and find a way off the island, a political battle wages on in Megasaki City where scientists and pro-dog activists are searching for a cure for the dog virus and trying to stop Kobayashi from exterminating the animals entirely. And that just scratches the surface of a plot that brings in Wes Anderson veterans and newcomers alike, including Courtney B. Vance as the narrator, Greta Gerwig as a foreign exchange student who suspects a conspiracy, Frances McDormand as an interpreter, Scarlett Johansson as a fetching dog named Nutmeg, and my favorite, Tilda Swinton as a TV news-watching pug called Oracle. We'll talk about how pugs are the best dogs after a pause. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. You're Rex. You're King. You're Duke. You're Boss. I'm Chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible alpha dogs. Atari Kobayashi, you heroically hijacked a junior turboprop XJ750 and flew it to the island because of your dog. Darn it. I've got a crush on you. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog spots. Does anybody know it? No. no. I've lost all of my pride. Spots, if he's alive, may very well be living, even at this moment, as a captive prisoner. Somebody is up to something. Will you help him? The little pilot. Why should I? Because he's a 12-year-old boy. Dogs love those. So, I love dogs, everyone. What do you think? 
Well, I really like this movie, but I also feel like we kind of have to talk about the controversy around it. It's just kind of become things you have to talk about hand it's in hand. It's dogged. What's that? It's dogged. The controversy is dogged. The controversy. <laughs> and, and like controversy has arisen about whether it's appropriate, the use of Japanese culture, the way it's been appropriated. And I got I to gotta say, you know, I've been on a real journey with this movie over this controversy. <laughs> I don't think I'm alone here. Where immediately after seeing it, a Twitter pal asked me what the level of cultural appropriation or misappropriation is in this film. And, and I wrote back and said, I don't think it's bad. It's obviously cultural tourism. I think it's foregrounded as such, which I think helps diffuse that. And, you know, I found out I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the backlash kind of kicked in pretty quickly. And, you know, Justin Chang had a very thoughtful review in the Los Angeles Times, which led to other thoughtful pieces like Alison Wilmore on Orientalism in BuzzFeed. And, and it really had to, you know, why didn't I see this? And I think, you know, well, I, I'm sure we'll all talk about it, but I think there's some pretty obvious reasons. I'm, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I'm not necessarily going to see these things the same way that someone like Justin Chang is. And I think what I don't like is that the turn some of the conversation has taken, as, as it often does, where Justin and Allison's very thoughtful pieces and other ones out there have uh, kind of been overwhelmed by, you know, here's the bad thing that must be burned, <laughs> which is not, I think you can acknowledge and interrogate and uh, address the possible flaws of this movie on that front without you know throwing out the whole movie. So, so that's kind of like, I'm just putting it all out there. And, and this is, you know, I've been thinking about it and still thinking about it, like, you know, where my relationship with this movie is, which I, you know, so again, I think it's a very good movie. And I think it can still be a very good movie while, you know, we, we should probably talk about why we have some problems with it and why other people are having problems. So just throwing that out there as sort of like the way to, to get into this, because I, I think it's kind of where everyone else is as well. Maybe not. I'm looking at Tasha. Um, I saw this film before the controversy happened. I saw it at its debut at uh, South by Southwest and Wes Anderson and a bunch of the stars were there. And much like my situation with Ready Player One, I saw it in a audience that was just over the moon enthusiastic for it, which was very catching. And watching it in that environment, like I found it very rousing and exciting, which is something I often cannot say about Wes Anderson films. I think the only other Anderson film that's given me this like level of tension and absorption and a feeling of propulsiveness, which is not one of his big things in mm -hmm. films was the Grand Budapest Hotel. And in large part, I attribute that to the driving force of the score behind it. Uh, in the case of Grand Budapest Hotel, I love that score. But it also, it's just this propulsive energy behind so much of the action. And then here we have like the, the Taika drum score and the same sort of sense of forward propulsion. I found this to be like a very exciting film while still having a lot of the reservations that I normally have about Wes Anderson, which we can get into. But yeah, seeing this before any of the controversy broke, I had some specific problems with the sense of cultural tourism in that I kept asking myself, why do the characters that speak Japanese, why are they going untranslated? Mm -hmm. Because absent all of the far more nuanced and thoughtful things that have been written about the silencing of Asian voices in culture, to me, it was just sort of, it felt like, well, what these people have to say apparently isn't important to Wes Anderson, which is very strange given how foregrounded, in particular, Atari's conversations with the dogs are. He spends a lot of time talking to them, and we have no idea what he's saying. 
And that's built as an important part of the story, the communication gap between them. But it's still something, you know, when you're listening to a character talk for 30 seconds straight and you have no idea what he's saying and there's no attempt to communicate it through action, I just find that to be a very odd choice. And it's one that, as far as I'm aware, Wes Anderson hasn't really explained. I feel like sitting down with him and having a conversation about some of the things he was trying to convey and some of the choices that he made would be really interesting. And I haven't seen a very good interrogation of his choices that he's actually responded to here. Has anybody else? I don't think he's doing a lot of press for this movie. Or maybe he's done with it. Well, I'm curious to hear what Genevieve mm-hmm. had to say, because I think I was familiar with everyone else's opinion, but not yours. Yeah, I get to do the Tasha thing and go... Yeah, (laughs) and then reveal that I really didn't like this movie very much, guys. Well, I definitely liked aspects of it, but I was frankly bored during this movie. And that like rousing emotional energy you felt, Tasha, I felt none of that. I think it was you that tweeted to me after seeing this movie that you predicted I would cry like seven times. Not even a welling up. Nothing. Oh, that's um, amazing. The, There's so much dog-related emotion in this film. I think, I I think this movie you. gets dogs very wrong. Oh, fascinating. I think dogs are a bad match for Wes Anderson. Wait, like, wait, wait. What Isle of Dogs gets wrong about dogs? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to like pile another controversy on top of this movie. But yes, I, you do. <laughs> Be specific. I want to hear that. Sorry, hear Wes Anderson. This. You clearly do not love dogs. <laughs> well, okay. actually, well, Anderson, Wes Anderson. <laughs> okay, here's my thing. Anderson is a very unsentimental director. That's his thing. If anything, he is kind of the antithesis of sentimentality. And like sometimes I like that in, in his films. I think it often manifests itself in kind of interesting ways, particularly I think his sort of like blasé depiction of death and violence, often toward dogs. <laughs> he has a history of killing and maiming dogs in his film as well. So, But that's a whole other conversation. So when you combine that lack of sentimentality with dogs nature's most like purely sentimental emotional like rawly emotional creatures it just it feels off like a dog with the wry detached voice of jeff goldblum coming out of it just doesn't register as a dog to me it registers as a wes anderson character there are like moments that feel like they're like oh this is how dogs act you know like they're fighting over food or you know or there's a flea crawling on it but it feels the movie's depiction of dogs doesn't seem to be tapped into any sort of emotional connection to dogs as creatures we love which in this story that is predicated on like people having to give up their dogs and apparently only two people in the entire city like caring enough to do anything about it it, it just feels wrong there's a whole to me mo- but there's a whole movement of people who want to do something about it i mean I, I this, obviously is a, let- this is an audio podcast but scott now looks visibly painful. no no it's fine i mean i guess I, I don't know i don't know what to do i mean i, I you know honestly I, I i love this movie and i don't know in light of the controversy it's been kind of difficult it, it makes me feel a little bit i'm actually reminded of how i was feeling after uh zero dark 30 came out and a lot of people i respect talked about it as being this horrible torture apologia and and uh, you know comparing uh Catherine bigelow to lenny riefenstahl and it's just like i can't i, I don't know what to do i, I still love it and I, I i'm trying to figure out how to be sensitive and respectful to people who were offended by aspects of the film particularly since a lot of them are asian-american 
critic. So I have to kind of respect that perspective even more. But I have to reconcile that with how I feel when I watch the film, which is that I find it immensely pleasurable. And I've seen it a couple of times now and, and, and just love it. I don't know what to say. So well, I, I, can I just backtrack? Because I didn't actually like weigh in on the controversy. Like my, oh, my problems okay. with the film that I've spoken about are separate yeah, okay. from, from the controversy and like i only saw it pretty recently so like i was kind of fully aware of the criticisms mm-hmm. against it and like i do share a certain i want to say frustration but like an awareness that the conversation around this film not everywhere but frequently is getting flattened not by the critics we have named who i think have two of mm-hmm. one done very nuanced and measured criticisms of this element of the film like i I think all i think justin chang and angie han and alison wilmer all kind of had a mostly positive response to the film angie did not but but justin and alison for sure okay uh alison says as much in her buzzfeed piece like pointing out that these are kind of measured critiques that Mm -hmm. have inspired kind of virulent responses in uh the twitter sphere she presents mostly ones that are in opposition to what these pieces are saying but i've also seen a lot of talk about this film that just says oh that movie's racist like it flattens it to like that is a racist movie a friend of mine we were talking about the film and someone asked him like are you going to see that and he's like no i heard it's really racist (laughs) and like that is what frustrates me about this conversation that as soon as you critique an aspect of the film that does bear discussion and does warrant being talked about it just overshadows everything else that there is to talk about in the film yeah and it makes it hard to talk about what you do respond to in the film or other things about the film that you don't respond to like the dogs uh, yeah. without it seeing Which is like the like, one thing that people seem to like except for you <laughs> yeah with, without it seeming to discount those other valid criticisms, you know, or, yeah. or acting like they don't exist. And they do. They're part and parcel of all these other elements of the film that we can discuss. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the phenomenon that fascinates me so much about this controversy is that Justin Chang review, which is so brilliant because Justin is great. I mean, Justin is like one of the best critics out there. But if you read the full review, it's got this great sense of proportionality mm-hmm. to, to it. I mean, it, you know, I think you would say on balance, it's a, a mixed or mixed to positive review, mm-hmm. I think you would say. But it does talk about elements of the film that bothered him, but it also has a great sense of who Wes Anderson is a filmmaker, what the film accomplishes on a technical level, on a comedic level, on an emotional level. It's a very complete, satisfying piece of criticism. But I noticed immediately as it found its way out into the Twitter sphere that that flattening effect started happening. Mm-hmm. And people, I think, jumped on that sentiment in a way that distorted what he was saying or at least kind of lost some of that nuance and proportionality that I think is really kind of critical in discussing this movie because I think there are aspects of it. I mean, I was I was going to say maybe the dogs on Trash Island were going to be kind of a area that we could all kind of come together and say that was pretty cute and well-plotted, but maybe we don't agree on that. But the stuff in Megasaki City... That's another story, Um, and um, it's certainly worth unpacking. I mean, I think the problem that you're running into here is looking to Twitter. I mean, there's a lot of important discourse that takes place on Twitter, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of... Is there? 
Yes, there is. There's a lot of... Uh, but is there really? Yes, there is. We can go back and forth like this all damn day. But... Say it in tweets. Okay. Thread, one of 364. <laughs> Keith, you're wrong. There is a lot of passing around of information on social media. And I get most of mine through Twitter because I can't stand Facebook uh, that I think is very important. And helping things like Justin Chang's piece go viral, bringing more people's attention to it is a very important part of Twitter. Or what Twitter does. But when people I'm I'm seeing this right now and being really frustrated with it over the whole Apu controversy mm. with the Simpsons. The Simpsons responded to the movie The Problem with Apu that response was very flat and dismissive and boring. Linda Holmes wrote a terrific piece about it in NPR and Twitter's immediate response was this guy thinks the Simpsons is racist snowflakes are idiots. And it's because none of the nuance of the conversation is is coming across there because it immediately got flattened down in that same way. Once you get the word racist on top of something, half of the audience's ears shut because they don't want to hear that something's racist because that's offensive. And the other half, their ears shut because they don't want to encounter something that is racist because they're afraid that's going to make them racist. So I agree with all of this as far as the conversation has become less nuanced. But I think that that conversation, the conversation about social media and what it does to the conversation is a completely separate conversation from the one we should be having, which is how you guys engage with you. You guys have both read the new watched, thoughtful, thought-through responses. I'm curious for your thoughts on those. Scott, to put it this way, yeah. you compare it to Zero Dark Thirty. To my mind, the, the pushback against Zero Dark Thirty was missing some of the point of the movie. Justin and Allison's analysis, on yeah, the other no, hand... It, it's an imperfect analogy. The analogy being, I don't necessarily feel like... You know, after I saw it a second time, and I didn't really feel like kind of enthusing about it at all. You know, I just like... I feel like this discussion about positive aspects of the film or films, things about the film I admired was just not even worth yeah, I think get, getting into. And I, and I, know, the I don't mean to be a, be a take my toys and go home kind of a guy, but it's just kind of like there's become a certain toxicity that surrounded the film and it's not it's no fault of the people who have considered it thoughtfully. And I will say that on second viewing, you know, a lot of the elements that, that Justin and others pointed out really did kind of itch a little bit for me more than they did the first time. So, you know, particularly the Greta Gerwig mm -hmm. uh, the, character, to have the initiative to rebel and to seek justice, to have that come from, you know, a foreign exchange student is just so obviously not a good idea. Uh, you know, in addition to other elements of the film which are less obviously a good idea, that one seemed to be like kind of a, a really big unforced error in the film. And we should spell out why. It's basically because you have the white foreign outsider coming in and being the hero and taking all of the action where all of the Japanese characters are comparatively passive. The cartoonishly well, white. Like <laughs> right. Well, and it's an undermining of the conceit of like not giving subtitles to the Japanese speaking characters because then you are ensuring that the only character that audiences who don't speak Japanese like can understand and can connect to is the white character who mm -hmm. speaks English and therefore doesn't need to be translated like the not subtitling the Japanese speaking characters or doing it only in some cases is a 
bold decision that I think was a bad decision. <laughs> I, I don't think it ends up working. I think it contributes to the boredom and lack of connection I had to this film. Like, I, I 100% get the idea that like, oh, it's from the dog's perspective and dogs don't understand what humans are saying. So they can't understand Atari, you know, and we can't understand Atari. So we're putting the dog's shoes like, sure, I get it. But like all the communication between the dogs and Atari that we see has to happen in very broad, like charades terms, you know, like there's just no opportunity to really develop that character or those relationships in a meaningful way, the human dog relationships, I mean. And then when you inject the Tracy Walker character into this, like even setting aside that, you know, she's an American, just that she is a white character who is more or less translating the ideas of the film for us because the Japanese characters can't have their say about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bad decision, I think. And it also just makes long stretches of the film kind of boring to me. There's a big, large issue in here about how to responsibly talk about the positive aspects of something that's problematic. And mm-hmm. I'd kind of like to get into that, given that everybody sitting at this table is an editor and a writer and a critic and is not just you know, responsible for social criticism, but for gatekeeping other people's social criticism and its ability to make it to the web. So I'd like to get into that. But before we lose track of it, Genevieve, I just have to ask. So the whole aspect of like Atari's attachment to his dog and like the redeeming of Chief, like as this rejected dog who didn't love humanity and learns to love humanity, none of that touched you emotionally at all? I mean, it like glanced off of me. Like I was like, yeah, that's that's nice. But I don't know. I just I didn't feel it. Part of it is I think that because that relationship was presented as a protector bodyguard relationship and we didn't really get any like information or illustration of how it expanded beyond that other than us kind of inferring it from Atari being there and then also the way it was just like transferred from one dog to the other so so easily it, it just felt very superficial to me. Okay. Well, that's certainly fair. So then looping back to that larger question, like given that I think that we're all like progressive people who respect other people's criticisms and point of view and who all read these same essays and were like moved by them and impressed with how thought through they were. And given that we all to some degree had our opinions of the movie changed by them, then what is our responsibility as far as any appreciation of the movie that we still have? Like, is there a way to present that without coming across as engaging in apologia for something that is deeply troubling to some people for very good reasons? Is there a way to to still uh, praise what we loved about this movie without coming across as, yeah, it's super racist, but on the other yeah, hand, like the dogs are fun. The, yeah, uh, oh, I, mean, I feel like we've talked about this almost entirely. You know, praise down here and a lot of you know talk about the controversy up here, but I feel like you know that maybe the responsibility at this point is to find a way to frame the conversation that talks about the controversy without losing sight of the film. Which you know, I think we did okay. But I think I give our discussion two stars. It is. I mean, at this point, there's no way this is not going to be forever a quote, you know, hashtag problematic fave. I think it's on us to to explain why the why the fave part of that still. I I would not. I I, forever. I'm not sure. I mean, objects settle in a different way. The, The way 
films are responded to in one time, it changes to the way they're responded to in another time. I, I really don't think there's any ever any settled law in terms of the way movies... Um, well, for the immediate future to be... May, maybe, but I mean, we've seen the opinion of... Uh, his last you know problematic cultural tourist film shift a little bit too and maybe in a more positive direction the the Darjeeling uh, limited, the limited. Yeah. so uh, but I, I i can talk about what i liked about this film though since i'm i am the it's chief well, I, like, I like it out too, I, um, you know, and so and I don't want to lose sight of that either yeah i mean I, I, because i i do i think for one i think stop motion as a form really suits wes anderson well wes anderson is a very detail oriented mm-hmm director and he's also a great pastiche artist and and i think if you look at this film you know frame by frame or an element by element um there's just a tremendous amount of like very small bits of satisfaction to be gleaned throughout the film i mean just like the making of sushi for example mm-hmm. like, the, like that whole sequence is so beautiful and the look of the film is beautiful it's it's a gorgeous film to look at the dogs are so ugly <laughs> no, what? It's Come on. so Oracle? ugly. What about Oracle? You don't you don't like p- the way pugs look anyway. But <laughs> Oracle is an amazing dog. Um, Oracle looks like an actual pug, but the the rest of them all kind of look like they're, they're filthy. They're and all, all little, but they're, but they're all in the they're they're on trash island. Any case, uh, so there's that. And the other thing I liked about this this <laughs> film, I mean, all of Wes Anderson's films always have schemes and plans and people trying to follow through on them. And I think this is a a particularly tight version of that. I mean, I I really responded to this film very well in the first viewing. Second, not as much, which is a very unusual response for me with Wes Anderson. Usually his films get better on repeat viewings. But the reason I responded so well at first is I just thought it was like just this tight, exciting little caper um, that also happened to have two an unusual degree of the political overtones of the film were interesting to me. Themes of authoritarianism and rebellion of, of uh, the rejection of science, the embrace of you know fake news and, and falsities, you know, these sort of like dark conspiracies. It felt for an Wes Anderson film, it felt weirdly of its, of I, the, I, it of the felt, moment. It still felt way. so like removed to, to me. Like I, it, I, it's I, abstract, but I feel like it's sort of like a child's first film about political dissent, you know? <laughs> And like, I don't want to overstate how much I dislike this film because like, I don't resent the, you know, hour and a half I spent watching it. Like it is a, a very fun film to watch from both a, a visual and an oral perspective. I am kind of side eyeing your claim that this is like a rousing caper. And I was well, you're bored. Well, yes. And also like, I don't know that I necessarily read the plot as like, the dogs trying to escape the island like i feel like the escape happens like sort of as a matter of course rather than there being like a specific plan that is being followed that's sort of a complicating element of Mm. of of that reading to me too but just to you know reiterate like the pure cinema pleasures of of Mm -hmm. this movie i think should not be understated like for all that they do have you know, these sort of problematic elements that we're talking about. And to kind of go back to your question, Tasha, is like, I think we as critics and like just consumers of culture, like all need to be mindful of relying too much on like a good, bad dichotomy, Mm -hmm. you know, like thumbs up, thumbs down, fresh, rotten, blah, blah, blah. And the visuals are good and the politics are bad and therefore equals out to bad. Like, no, these are all of this can coexist in the same film and is all worthy of discussion and examination and contextualization. And just because there is one bad element doesn't mean that we can't still talk about those other elements yeah. you know no we it, can it, always talk the problem is that when the bad element is 
is something as scathing as racism mm-hmm. or sexism, when it's something that pervasive, and in this case, when it affects so many of his decisions, it's much harder to maintain a, a nuanced perspective. I mean, we we talk about a lot of nuance on this podcast, and there's always that separation of these are the elements that I do like, and these are the elements that I don't like. These are more importantly, these are the elements that I think do and don't work towards what the director's trying to do. I think fundamentally where I come down in this movie is I don't understand what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. If I felt that there was a like a good and compelling reason, he decided he needed to set this in an imaginary fantasy future Japan, but he hasn't really explained why. Normally, I don't rely on a director to explain to me why he did a thing. But in this case, so many of the decisions made here are so baffling and so far away from any perspective that I, I can understand. And I've heard so many compelling reasons why they're problematic. I want to ask him, like, what were you trying to accomplish here? I mean, the the closest answer I can give you comes from uh, Alison Wilmer's piece that we've cited several times now. And she writes in there or, or she notes uh, something that Anderson said at the film's debut at the Berlin Film Festival in February. And I'm quoting her now. He explained that he and his regular collaborators, Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman, had wanted to make a movie about a pack of dogs and also quote, something in Japan. And the two ideas were then just combined. Quote, I'm assuming Anderson's, the story could have taken place anywhere, but it came together when we realized it should take place in a fantasy version of Japan. So there, it doesn't appear that there is a reasoning behind it other than like, Anderson wanted to do a film in Japan to pay homage to these Japanese like filmmakers and films that he clearly loves and wants to pay homage to in, in his own film. And like that was his reasoning. And the fact that he didn't consider the other part of that decision that, that we are all now considering is something that should be discussed. I, th- I mean, I think there was a way for him to do it, to combine those two things more thoughtfully and harmoniously than he has. When I hear people say, like, why does this have to be in Japan at all? I kind of bristle at that thought because I think he is a pop artist. He's a pastiche Mm -hmm. artist. He's somebody who I'm sure does have this interest in in Japanese film and Japanese culture and wants a film to be a repository of all those visual ideas and all those uh, all these other stimuli that you know he wants to kind of throw into the movie and whether you think that combination works or doesn't I just I think it's you know when people you know ask the question why Japan I think why does there have to be an old mill you know, <laughs> so, but that uh, is a that is an important question. the The question that we're asking is, what does it bring to the film? Does it bring anything positive or important, or thematic, or key, or even interesting to the film? Well, the film's called the Old Mill. <laughs> well, I, I would, that, I'm arguing that, that it does. That is funny, but it's a circular argument, and it's meant as a circular argument, and it doesn't give us any kind of insight into the situation here. I mean, I would argue that it does because I like the film and find it quite beautiful. And a lot of the Japanese elements that are in the film, a lot of the references to different films and filmmakers and, and aspects of the culture. I mean, I, I and kind the of Taiko like, drum score that you that you responded to so much, right? I just, I, I mean, I think I think it justifies itself because it's beautiful but um you know i think the mechanics of the plotting maybe is is where things um start to get a little bit sticky but uh i don't think really the i'm accepting of the fact that he 
could make a film in Japan uh, because I think a lot of what he does here is, is quite nice. Well, I, I don't know if we're going to get to the uh, bottom of this uh, <laughs> uh, in this segment, uh, and we've been wanting to talk. We're about We're not going to solve around. racism in the in the first half we're of the second part of our podcast. Cultural appropriation forever. <laughs> <laughs> what are we even doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if we had just like 20 more minutes. Like, you know, Gen- Genevieve as the producer is suggesting we should move on. You gotta leave- I'm sure in 20 minutes we could fix the world. You got to leave the listener wanting more, though. <laughs> if, if, if four white Chicagoans can't sort this out, <laughs> what hope is there for anyone? Okay, so we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Chicken Run and Isle of Dogs. Okay, I got a question. What's your favorite food? A double portion of doggy chop from the can mixed into a bowl of broken puppy snaps with a vitamin crushed up into it. King's the spokes dog for that. He's the doggy chop dog. Yeah. Used to be. Was that your daily meal? Not always. My master was a school teacher. We weren't rich, you know. You? A center-cut Kobe ribeye seared on the bone with salt and pepper. Wow. It was my birthday supper every year. Mine's hot sausage yakitori style. The snack vendor always saved me one on game days. Duke? Uh, green tea ice cream. My master had a sweet tooth I probably inherited from her. You heard the rumor, right, about Doggy Chop? Remind us again. Brand. What rumor? Oh, they folded. Oh, no. Mm. Doggy? Doggy Chop folded? How about you, Chief? What was your favorite food? Me? Oh, I don't care. Garbage, trash, scraps of rubbish. I'm used to leftovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. I wasn't always astray. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. In the last segment, I mentioned you know the stop motion style of Isle of Dogs, which is Anderson's second effort in that realm after Fantastic Mr. Fox, and and I talked about how well suited his very detail-oriented style is to that form where you can really you know, bear down and, and uh, do a lot of just literal frame-by-frame details. And you see a lot of that in Isle of Dogs. I mean, the fur, of course, being a, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's just so beautiful to see just those individual pieces of fur kind of moving around in the wind. But I wanted to talk, I guess, compare and contrast here, the stop-motion styles of these two films, Chicken Run and Isle of Dogs. It's all about fat characters versus skinny characters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, seriously, though, the I mean, one of the things that's just so striking about Aardman's characters to me is that they're all dumb pear-shaped characters and not mrs tweedy she's a rail oh well yeah that's true that's because she's evil exactly (laughs) (laughs) no but there's just kind of a sort of like homey sloppy abundance Mm -hmm. to nick park's animation in general whereas you know wes anderson's dogs are scrawny and ribby and look like they're running around on stilts because they're living in an environment where they're literally starving i mean they're kind of meant to evoke concentration camp victims and it gives you a very different aesthetic like the chubby characters who are perfectly smooth because they're made of silicon and plasticine versus these characters who are are dirty furry scrawny beasts there's kind of a huggability to the dogs that there isn't to the chickens because the chickens look so so complete in and of themselves and like the dogs just kind of have this like harrowed look to them I, i just think that like both of these species are things that you're supposed to sympathize with 
with. But you interact with them sort of mentally in very different ways, you know, because some of them are smooth and some of them are furry. I think it also just affects the dynamism of the two forms or like how that dynamism is rendered. Like we talked in the first part a little about how so much of the Aardman style is in the eyes and the mouths and, and, you know, how those move. And Anderson's style, animation or not, is something that I think is just a lot more still, particularly in his his actors, whether human or stop motion dog. Like there's a lot more just still facing the camera type of uh, shots happening. Mm -hmm. But with the dogs specifically because of the fur and because of the way the fur moves and you get that uh, from frame to frame, you get that shimmer effect. I think there's like a specific term for it, but just the way that the fur kind of moves on its own, it does create a sense of dynamism that comes purely from the stop motion style not from manipulation of facial features and i think he's he's very influenced by the rank and bass style too which does that same sort of thing i guess it's a little even simpler in rank and bass but that kind of stillness or, yeah. and also in terms of not the characters but the settings i think there is we talked in the first half about the way the sets are built and lit in in chicken run and the way it gives it that very like real feeling and anderson the sets in this are absolutely beautiful but they have more of a set quality there mm-hmm. there are certain shots that almost look like just layered picture books you know mm-hmm. like there's there are very obvious planes in the background and like that's really cool looking and like very keeping with anderson's diorama style or i think mm-hmm. i think it was justin chang who called it like a bento box uh, uh. you know aesthetic which is perfect yeah uh, it's a really good reveal but it works within anderson's directorial viewpoint the same way that the very kind of warm lifelike you know you, you feel like you can step your foot into it settings work in chicken run what's interesting to me is is to consider you know how much you know, formal compositions are in the Anderson one, and they call attention to to the effort and the work and, and the, the way things are put together. And Chicken Run is, is much looser, more traditional, like sort of cinematic compositions. But to think of like the same amount of work goes into each of them, you know, it's, just, it's, it's kind of interesting that Chicken Run has to, to work just as hard to appear far more casual than Anderson's film. One thing I will say about Anderson, though, is that he does... It, this goes back even to like Life Aquatic. He does occasionally like to be deliberately crude in, mm. in, in terms of the presentation of, of events. You know, like the action scenes in Life Aquatic? Yes, in the action scenes here, like when, when all the, the dogs get into a scuffle and it's just like this. <laughs> cotton balls. All the, it's like this. this co- you're right. The cotton balls develop. Or, you know, the, the, those incredible shots of like of Atari's little prop plane, you know, kind of circling the air and crashing. I mean, it looks like something that you could put together, you know, in your backyard. Yeah, he, he, he loves like the pullback to emphasize how puny something is. Yeah. Like, that's a favorite trick of his. Yeah. So he, he occasionally will like, make you aware of the fact that you're watching this deliberately amateurish stop motion uh, style at play. Well, that's part of the sort of diorama effect. I mean, he just he comes across as a filmmaker who really likes his prosceniums, who really mm. likes that sense of you're watching a, a stage play and the backgrounds are actual backdrops. So he has a, a tendency. And for me, one of the more in, visually interesting things that happens in Isle of Dogs is the point where he breaks those planes. And I, I'm assuming that it's done deliberately. Like you think about the scenes where the dogs are chasing along after 
his plane as it's trying to take off. And that just feels like such a two-dimensional, you know, as you say, it's a pop-up book with something on a string moving from mm. one side of the other to the screen. But then you you look at something like the point where the ships come in to try to kidnap Atari away, and suddenly you break the plane and look upwards and you're operating in a third dimension. And it's visually startling. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's conceptually nerve-wracking because suddenly you're being attacked from an angle that didn't exist in previous shots. And in kind of the big finale chase, there's that same sense of like suddenly looking up to operate in a a third plane. It's like a Star Trek movie where suddenly somebody figures out that uh, space is not two dimensional and you can go under another ship or otherwise get off the plane that you're operating in. I think you're referring to Wrath of Khan. I am referring <laughs> Maybe to Maybe it's Wrath an Ozu Khan. reference too. O- Ozu is famous for not abiding by, what is it, the 180 degree rule, mm-hmm. shooting the same scene from two different angles that would be completely not allowed in a Hollywood production. I doubt that was his <laughs> intention, but I mentioned Ozu as a way of leading into one other connection that we wanted to make, which had to do with pastiche and, and film references, because we talked earlier about The Great Escape and Stalag 17 and, and, and these influences on Chicken Run, but since Isle of Dogs was supposed to be this grand homage to Japanese cinema and, uh, and other things uh, to do with Japan, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit more. Real, real quick, just because I know, since I'm not very well versed in Japanese cinema, I'm not going to have a lot to contribute to, to this. I'm just going to shout out Seven Samurai and then walk away because <laughs> that was what I recognized. Yeah, well, that was. <laughs> did you, did you want to drop that mic while you're at it? That, that was the thing. I, I felt like with, uh, I mean, the references in Chicken Runner could not be more overt. There's a, there's a Hen House 17 in which much of the action <laughs> takes place, but but I expect. And there's also see- a bunch of weird little details, like the Scottish chicken has the heavy glasses that Dustin Hoffman's character has in uh, Papillon, oh, yeah. which is also a big escape movie. Yeah, sure. And there's stuff like, uh, there's a line directly taken from uh, Ace in the Hole, mm. which is a movie about a man trying to escape from a well, basically. Mm-hmm. So like there are the broad references, like the broad thematic references, but they're also just a, like a bunch of little in-jokes for cinema files. Yeah. And, and I expected to see a lot more overt references to Japanese cinema in this, and I felt like Anderson's style kind of absorbs all of that. I mean, you get a musical cue from Seven Samurai and other things like that. But then, our, then our pal Charles Romesco actually did a piece like tracing some specific influences. What do I know, right? Uh, yeah, but, I was, but, I was but, kind of grateful fun- for that piece because it was hard for me to identify that clearly mm-hmm. uh, when he was referencing Kurosawa. Though I will say that the plot of Isle of Dogs is very similar to the plot for the Konichikawa film Fires on the Plane. Which we thought about pairing. Which we thought about, yeah, because we really wanted to have the lowest possible (laughs) uh, (laughs) listenership. Oh, we're going to get that next next episode. Yes, it's true. The next episode, we got something really uh, um, for the fans. fans. Uh, But Fires on the Plane, it takes place right at the end of World War II and is about Japanese soldiers who are just abandoned on an island and, you know, f- you know, basically left to fend for themselves and to, and to starve and to die. And so uh, I, I thought maybe there was some connection there uh, between uh, Isle of Dogs and Fires on the Plane, just on a pure plotting level and yeah. divorced from anything else. Uh, just to be a little more specific, the, the Charles Bromesco piece is in Vulture and is called Unpacking the Akira Kurosawa references in Isle of Dogs. That piece was useful. There's also a like a video floating out there that cuts together uh, Kurosawa and uh, Isle of Dogs scenes so you can see some of the compositions taken directly from Kurosawa films. But from everything I've read, the influence seems 
becomes a little more abstract uh, and a little less specific reference drawn. So it's not the Ready Player One of Japanese cinema. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's never been his style anyway. I mean, yeah. I think uh, you know people talked about Renoir's The River being a big influence on the Darjeeling Limited, but I almost think that was an influence in terms of approach, of in terms of Jean Renoir not being from India, taking that foreigner's vantage and appreciation of its you know exoticism, etc., and making a movie out of it. And I think that was sort of a roadmap for what Wes Anderson could do. Um, rather than him making very specific, obvious, easy-to-identify references. Yeah, he's not that referential a filmmaker. There's also the piece in IndieWire uh, titled, Wes Anderson Explains Hayao Miyazaki's Influence on Isle of Dogs. And if you read that, the influence is more or less, Miyazaki likes stillness. I also like stillness. Like, <laughs> it's it's really not a very specific kind of referential thing. It's just sort of this, uh, like, a sense and a mood that he draws both from Kurosawa and from, uh, from Miyazaki that kind of comes back down to that sense of, like, I like Japanese cinema. Like, I'm not necessarily sure that I know why. I just kind of like it. For brevity's sake, uh, I mean, there's so many connections between... Uh, these films. Are there any other aspects that you wanted to bring up? Well, there's the whole romance thing, which we touched on briefly. It just sort of amuses me that both of these films have to find a male character and a female character and have them have a romance, even though in both cases, it doesn't really acknowledge the animal nature of them. I mean, Rocky is presumably the father of all of the chicks we see at Mm -hmm. the end of Chicken Run, (laughs) yet we have to have a sort of monogamous kissing relationship somehow. You know, you no, know, I had never thought about that. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to have to introduce you. To I mean, some of them could be fowlers. No, that's true. You still got light. You need in some them. genetic diversity in that chicken utopia. Wow. They, they all look exactly alike. <laughs> Don't talk to me about genetic diversity. My point is just, I think both films are kind of. It's kind of just hilarious to me that we have to. These are not terribly anthropomorphized animals in some ways. You know, the the chickens are pretty chickeny in a lot of ways and the the dogs are very much animals that rip each other's uh, ears off uh, in order to get their mouths on a mouthful of maggots i mean they're kind of gross but we still have to have but we love them yeah they, they, <laughs> they, they, they think they're they think it's gross too it's like this isn't good what are we doing here <laughs> in that wes anderson way it's like this isn't right where i'm used to sitting on a warm uh, whatever but one thing that's kind of fascinating tasha you mentioned about how these romances come out without us acknowledging their animal nature. What makes that particularly strange in case of Isle of Dogs is that that is the main theme of Fantastic Mr. Fox, is it not? I mean, like, you know, what it means to be an animal. And uh, I mean, I think it's treated in that usual, that kind of ironic Wes Anderson way, but there's some sincerity to it as well. And that's kind of the driving theme. And that's not present at all here. Yeah, it's very much as a hilarious remove, given that these are all... You know, the animals in Fantastic Mr. Fox wear clothes and stand on their back legs and have a civilization and all sorts of things that the the animals in Isle of Dogs don't. Maybe he feels that he already covered that ground. As far as the break between animals and humanity goes, one of the things you had brought up is the extermination theme here, which is that both of these films are expressly about humanity taking animals for granted and being willing to and, in fact, eager to kill them all off. Mm -hmm. There's just sort of a fundamental break in both of these movies in the relationship between animals and humanity. And there's a sense that humanity is nuanced in some ways in that there are individual characters, but also just kind of as a a whole, as a collective, 
like a kind of screaming horror. Like we we talked a little bit about this film vis-a-vis something like Watership Down or Plague Dogs. And those movies also have the same kind of relationship where, you know, people can be kind, they can be creative, but ultimately humanity is an apex predator and it's scary. These two films also illustrate like different human motivations behind that. Like, I mean, Mrs. Tweedy is obviously driven by greed, you know, in Isle of Dogs. It's a it's a little stranger because like the 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 mayor comes from this dynasty of cat lovers. Mm -hmm. So it's like predicated on this like age old cat versus dog debate, which is like sort of a, a weird motivation to apply to this extermination of a species. Um, but there also but, seems to be a profit motive in being able to replace all dogs with robo watchdogs that true. they can sell. Yeah. Also, we don't get any cat characters. What's up with that? They're, they're, they occasionally like move around the edges, but they never speak, yeah, as they should it. not. <laughs> Again, the mic drop from Jennifer. To quit, stay on the extermination theme and to kind of like tie it into something we were talking about, about the stop motion style, I do want to briefly point out that these two films have corollary sequences in their uh, respective tours through a death machine. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the reason I say I, I was going to bring it up within the conversation about stop motion style is because I think those two sequences are really good examples of the difference in style of these two films. I'm talking in Chicken Run about going through the pie machine, mm -hmm. which is like you're, you're in it, you know, and you're, it's like happening all around you and around Ginger, and it's it's very chaotic and three-dimensional. And in Isle of Dogs, it's this like tour through the incinerator <laughs> via, you know, cable car, and it's so like removed and flat, and it's, it's almost like a diagram, you know, in that it's such Andersonian style in that moment. And it's it's great. It's funny. I liked that sequence a lot. It's just so different from how Chicken Run does more or less the same thing. That's but, a really good point. And he, I th but I, th I think the sequence in Chicken Run is just so much more important to that movie. Just like this is the grand finale. We got to make this count in a way mm -hmm. that in a way that those like Wallace and Gromit films always had like the big you know Rube Goldberg thing where it's gonna like really gonna knock your socks off and so uh um, it's not the finale yeah Chicken it's not run, though finale. it happens like kind of halfway through when when we see is it, it but through? it is but yeah. it also i mean it's it's very important because it's the point where rocky kind of does oh his gosh. his face heel turn where he i mean he you know, risks right. his yeah, life in order the, to the, the, the save gender well, i'll be damned yeah i'll forget everything i just said well but it's <laughs> I mean, the, the point where they both functions bond. yeah yeah I'll the, the, remember everything i just said <laughs> Because <laughs> it was a, a very insightful. Um, so Chicken Run is currently streaming on Netflix. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray and on various streaming services. Isle of Dogs is doing a reasonably robust art house business and will keep expanding slowly. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I, I didn't actually see this lately, but it's coming out, so it's relevant again. Uh, there is a picture called Marrowbone, which I saw at TIFF and was extremely impressed with. Directed by Sergio G. Sanchez, who uh, longtime Next Picture Show followers may be most familiar with as the writer of The Orphanage, Jay Bayona's horror film about, uh, well, an orphanage. At any rate, uh, Sergio is yet another uh, kind of of the school of 
Guillermo del Toro kind of followers and supportees and mentees. And he's yet another Spanish creator who just comes from a very, I guess, specific uh, point of view. Marrowbone is a horror story. It is not exactly like the orphanage, but it has some of the same feeling, some of the same seeping dread. And it's about uh, these four siblings growing up in a house isolated from other people. It's sort of hard to describe without giving away some of the plot points. It's the kind of film that's perhaps better discovered in the process of unfolding than described. But it very much has the feeling of almost a turn-of-the-century novel. It's visually beautiful. Some of the images look like something out of Vermeer, essentially. The use of light is uh, particularly beautiful. But it's also, in a way, a conventional haunted house story where there's something in the house with them. And there's a question of first what it is, then what it wants, then what it can do. Uh, Anna Taylor-Joy is in this movie. You have seen her in many good horror films and uh, art house movies. favorite. And uh, George McKay is also a, a... really important part of the story. I think the two of them together give this film a lot of humanity that kind of help it rise above a jump scare ridden horror film. But it also just unfolds in a really surprising and interesting way. And it premiered at TIFF and then just sort of sunk like a stone. Now it's uh, theoretically coming into theaters, although I've been unable to find a place where it's playing. It's doing the usual like super limited run Mm -hmm. slash VOD release. So people will be able to broadly see it as of uh, April 13th uh, is when it comes out. For whatever reason, it's not really being advertised or promoted in any way. So people are going to have to make the effort to seek it out on their own. But I think horror fans that do, particularly fans of gothic horror, particularly fans of like surprising, distinctive horror, are really going to enjoy this film a lot. Uh, it's called Marrowbone, and it is a very beautiful film. Keith, what about you? My movie viewing's been kind of all over the place the last couple of weeks. I wasn't here the last episode because I went I went on vacation to France, which involved a long flight there and also a long flight back. Uh, <laughs> so basically, I just loaded up my iPad with a bunch of movies, much of which I downloaded from the Stars app, which is a surprisingly rich selection of, of movies. There's, that, been, there's been some many recent episodes where the only yeah. place ways to see it has been on Stars. It's, it's weird, <laughs> right? But it's also kind of like a lot of like, hey, I should finally watch that movie. And I, I so I guess my recommendation is sort of like doing those, hey, I should finally watch that movie, movies you need to get to. Like I watched uh, Rio Grande, which is a John Ford film, one of the big ones I'd never seen before, which is terrific. The original Cape Fear, uh, which I'd never gotten around to, also also very good. And then, and then kind of like like filling in some blanks like i'd never seen joe dante's explorers all the way through and it starts so well and ends so badly <laughs> but it's still it's like you know it's it helped me understand that director's career better so just you know find those gaps and fill them in when he has some time you know you can watch that you know the latest fast and furious movie some other time you know yeah. just uh go book get, a flight to paris yeah <laughs> download a bunch of random crap from those cars kind of it and, and go and go to it um Not Pauline, a bunch of pa- random crap some specific crap. Yeah, Pauline at the Beach I watched on the way there, which is a rumor oh, wow. film. That is a, that is a, that is a random... Yeah, it was, random it, was, well, it was kind of where I was going to, too. Okay, so, you know, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, book a flight. It doesn't matter where you're going, just put a bunch of movies on your iPad, you'll be happy. So on, in the show notes for this episode, under your next picture show for Keith, I'm just going to put plane viewing? <laughs> plane viewing, sure, yes, there you go. And stars. It's in the stars app, all right, got it. Genevieve, what about you? Uh, so I'm a sucker for 
a good ensemble comedy, and as comedic ensembles go, it doesn't get much more enticing to me than Aubrey Plaza, John C. Riley, Allison Brie, Kate Micucci, Dave Franco, Molly Shannon, Nick Offerman, and Fred Armisen. Pretty good, right? Yeah, those, <laughs> but are, good, those what, are good people. But what if I told you all those people played residents of a 14th century Italian convent? Oh, that would be pretty weird, well. right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, pretty weird is the best descriptor I can come up with for The Little Hours, the 2017 film I'm describing, which takes an anachronistic comedic approach to its medieval setting that makes up an intriguing strangeness what it lacks in laugh-out-loud moments. Uh, this film is written and directed by Jeff Baina, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who co-scripted I Heart Huckabees and made Life After Beth, starring Plaza as a lovesick zombie. Uh, So he's clearly someone who enjoys a high-concept comedic premise. He's also Plaza's romantic partner in real life and shows here, as he did with Life After Beth, an innate understanding for her offbeat comedic instincts. Uh, As with Life After Beth, this is far from a perfect film, but it's a great showcase for Plaza, who plays one of three bored nuns, uh, Brian Micucci being the other two, who find increasingly blasphemous and ribald ways to rebel against the restrictions of convent life, uh, all of which center in some way on the character played by Dave Franco, who pretends he's a deaf mute so he can hide out at the convent after he's discovered in a compromising position by his lord, played by Nick Offerman in the silliest wig you ever did see. Uh, I don't want to oversell this movie, which is pretty much the definition of a lark, but there's some interesting ideas hiding out in its premise, and the medieval setting makes for an appealingly offbeat backdrop to this story, uh, one that is occasionally quite beautifully rendered, I should I'm glad you said that because I, I had heard that on top of uh, uh, its other good attributes that it is quite striking to look at. Yes, yeah, um, uh, which is nice. For yeah, part of, part of that is the setting, which is just like beautiful, but it's also filmed very nicely. Yeah, which is something I really crave for comedies to do more, and they never do. So <laughs> yeah. I should really just yeah. yeah uh, come come to think of it, Life After Beth was also kind of like had had an interesting, distinctive visual style. So I think this is being a. I, I think he has like yet to make like a a really great movie, but there's a lot of promise in, in what I've seen from him so far. Plus, this movie's only ninety minutes, uh, which I think is just the right amount of time to spend with this premise. Uh, though I probably could have used like five more minutes of Offerman in that wig. It's a really funny way. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it's called The Little Hours. It just recently hit Amazon Prime and Hulu. And if any of what I just described sounds appealing, I would check it out. Definitely. If I find any <laughs> any spare minutes at all, <laughs> a formally exciting comedy with that cast uh, and that premise. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Scott? Okay, well, we talked a lot uh, in this podcast about culture clash comedy and Chicken Run and Isle of Dogs. So I thought I'd continue along those lines. Um, this week... Uh, on the New York Times watching site, I composed a list on uh, Romanian cinema aimed at people who want to get started on one of the most exciting scenes in international cinema. Uh, I covered a lot of the basics uh, like uh, the death of Mr. Lazarescu and four months, three weeks and two days. But I also delved into some less well-known titles that I hadn't seen before. One of those is a movie from 2007 called California Dreamin' from a young writer-director named Christian Nemescu. Nemescu died in a car accident before he could put the finishing touches on the film, which may account for the looseness that occasionally dogs the sprawling slice of life. I mean, it's like two and a half hours long. It probably could be a little shorter. Uh, but his abundant talent is on display in a culture clash comedy that strands American soldiers in a tiny Romanian town in 1999 when NATO was involving itself in Yugoslavia. Armand Asante plays a high-strung American captain who's desperately trying to get a train full of radar equipment to Kosovo, but winds 
ends up waylaid by a corrupt station master who won't let him go anywhere. Uh, and so the Americans wind up suspending time in this town that's riddled with corruption, but also full of boisterous humanity and flirtation and you know lots of really amusing local color. Uh, there's lots of funny exchanges and fascinating exchanges between these small-town Romanians and their bemused American guests. And it's just an unusual piece of work, you know, lighthearted in some respects, pointedly political in others, uh, but very exciting and unpredictable. You know, of course, I would maybe watch some of these essential Romanian films first. I wouldn't necessarily want you to jump right to California Dream. And if you haven't seen The Death of Mr. Lazarescu or Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days or any uh, of those types of films, but... If you're already an addict, and you should be, uh, it's worth seeing uh, Nemescu's only work. He was a huge talent. Where can people see it? Well, people could see it. It's available on, on iTunes and Amazon Video. And if you really are interested in Romanian cinema, there are four Romanian films that are packaged together on Filmstruck right mm. now. So you can kind of check those out, including some stuff I didn't include on the list because it's not available anywhere else, like 1208 East of Bucharest, which is another kind of essential film that sort of sparked the Romanian new wave. So, um, ah, film struck almost as good as the stars app. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you're ever on a plane, just start down like, yeah, California dreaming. I, I, I was surprised. None of you, none of the rest of you rec- recommended it, but, uh, here I am. <laughs> And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 1st and 3rd. Genevieve, what are we discussing? Chloe Zhao's beautiful new film, The Rider, is the second great horsey film to come out in April, following Andrew Hayes' Lean on Pete, and surely one of the most unique of its kind. Blurring the line between fiction and documentary, Zhao casts non-actors playing lightly fictionalized versions of themselves, starting with Brady Jandreau as Brady Blackburn, a rodeo star who has to reconsider his options after sustaining a head injury from a terrible riding accident. Though we don't know which parts of his story are inspired by real life and which are pure creative license, The Rider has a sense of authenticity that it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. That mix of truth and fiction recalls the works of Abbas Kiarostami, specifically his landmark 1990 hybrid film Close Up, which also casts real people to reenact the strange case of a man who pretended to be the Iranian director Mohsen Makhmobaf and was eventually arrested for fraud. What is true? What is false? And does it matter? Listen to our next pairing to find out. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Chicken Run, Isle of Dogs, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. You can find me writing about film and television as the film and television editor at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And lately, you can find me on Pop Culture Happy Hour and our parent podcast, Film Spotting, talking even more about Ready Player One. Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com. I'm the editorial director of film and television. And guys, I have a plug. I have a plug. Oh. Plug, plug away. Plug. If you're listening to this on April 19th, uh, when the episode comes out, I'll be hosting a fan Q&A, a construction with Olive Films, with Tom Holland, the director of the 1996 Stephen King adaptation, Thinner. And um, if you... We can probably post something on the website, but if you if you Google Olive Films Tom Holland uh, interview, you'll, you'll you'll find the the place to leave uh, your questions. Obviously, you got to get them in fast since we're uh, it's coming up soon, but that should be fun. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at kfips three thousand. Genevieve, 
How about you? You can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com, where I edit all the things. Um, and occasionally, right, I'm uh, helping recap the Americans yes. uh, this, this season, the last season. Mm-hmm. And I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Up Rocks, uh, uh, Variety, uh, NPR, any number of other places. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space in their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. I love my dog as much as I love for you. For you may think my dog will always come through. All he asks from me is the food to give him strength. All he ever needs is love, and that he knows he'll get. So I love my dog as much as I love for you. For you make a fame, my dog will always come through. Thank you.